Sunday Morning Matinee is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Welcome to Sunday Morning Matinee, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. Today, we are gathering up all the Jellicle cats and heading to the McCavity Ball. Nah, I'm just kidding. We're talking about Star Wars. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm the minister of Overbrook Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I've got some super hot takes on Rum Tug Tugger. So get excited, Matt. You can have that for your own separate Andrew Lloyd Webber movie podcast. <laughs> we, were to that. we did do uh, a Jesus Christ Superstar at one point. It's true. It was, yeah, we did the, the live TV special. That's right. Uh, today in our first segment, Justification by Faith, I'm going to ask Adam how the new Star Wars movie, The Rise of Skywalker, might help us think about life and the church and the world. And in our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to do something a little different and try and tie Star Wars to the season of Christmas and Epiphany, broadly speaking. So rather than a set of lectionary passages, we'll do a broad discussion about the season and how the rise of Skywalker might fit. And in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're reading, watching, or following. So, Adam, I'm supposed to introduce this movie. I don't really know whether I need to. It's Star Wars. It's Episode Nine, And for what it's worth, we're going to spoil the heck out of this thing. So, frankly, if you haven't seen this already, you probably shouldn't be listening to the show. And if you have seen it, you probably don't need the introduction. So I suppose the big question for me going into this was, in Episode Eight, Ryan Johnson asked some pretty substantial questions about this franchise. He, he posed some really material questions to a very mythological universe, which... I think left episode nine director J.J. Abrams with a big challenge. And I'm wondering, Adam, do you think he pulled it off? Was this movie a worthwhile successor to Last Jedi and separately a fitting climax to this modern trilogy? So there's a a third question that I want to add to that that I think is worth considering for both of us, too, is that is this the fitting climax to these nine movies, this sort of like Skywalker arc because i think in some ways each of those questions can be answered differently so as a movie itself i think i liked watching it and i'm reminded that this universe is one that i like spending time in and these characters even the new characters are ones that i really care about i appreciated all of the little fan servicey things that happened in this the um Return of Lando Calrissian, for instance, gave me true delight. The fact that that Han Solo makes an an appearance as well, that Leia, um, that we get this little piece of Leia's Jedi training. I mean, all of this stuff was exciting because it continued to stoke the fire of nostalgia and care that I have for this strange franchise and that I have had since I was somewhere in the neighborhood of six years old. So... In that way, it it really is a joy to watch. I like watching them. I like watching the bad ones. I, in preparation for this movie, watched The Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. 
And even though those movies are like, or the first two at least, are true messes, like there was something quaint and lovely about them. And I appreciated them just for what they were. And um, even as I had complicated feelings about them. And I think that's the same for this. My sense is that this is an interesting movie to watch. I enjoyed being in the theater with lots of different people watching it. And then when I started to think about it after I left the theater, it didn't land as well as previous movies. Now, I think within the Star Wars fan universe, The Last Jedi is something of a dividing or divisive picture. What troubled me about this movie is all of the ways in which J.J. Abrams felt that he needed to course correct the Ryan Johnson movie. Right. And that that did leave me cold, right? Because it it seemed to sort of fundamentally betray the spirit of Star Wars, which is part of the thing I love about it is that if you want to know about something in Star Wars, there's like an answer out there. And the only way that there can be an answer to every question that everyone has about Star Wars is because George Lucas, even though he can be so whiny and cantankerous and annoying, decided that he would give this movie and this universe and these stories to lots of different people, right? So there are lots of different directors. There are lots of different writers. There are like books and comics and cartoons and all of these different things that are a part of the Star Wars canon, so to speak. And they all have to sort of tell the story, their stories within the ecosystem of other people and the stories they write. And I felt like J.J. Abrams didn't actually like live into the spirit of that a little bit because Ryan Johnson like set him up into tell another story. And he it felt like he was like, nah, I don't like the way you tell that story. So I'm just going to reverse course on all of it and tell the story that I wanted to tell from the first to the third. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think I, I agree with that. And I think we can identify some specific places where that happens. One is the basic erasure of the character of Rose from this film, who was introduced entirely in Last Jedi, was a bit of a point of fan contention. And then J.J. Abrams just doesn't want to get into it and pushes her to the side. Uh, the, the second is this moment when uh, Ray is willing to go the path that Luke has blazed before and kind of retire from active service and re- resign herself to a life on Octo and shows up to throw her lightsaber into the fire and Luke walks out and says, that's not a very nice thing to do to a, uh, to, to a, to a Jedi's instrument, which is exactly what he does the movie beforehand and has to kind of apologize for himself. And the third and like probably most obvious and critical one is this question of race parentage, uh, where in, in Last Jedi, famously, Kylo Ren tells Rey that she comes from nothing. And this movie uh, says, no, just kidding. We were lying about that. Your parents wanted you to think they were nobodies, but actually you're a Palpatine. And so it all kind of, it, it, it's instead of being pushed into out of the realm of kind of big operatic family drama, this movie sucks all of that back in and says, no, actually, the Palpatines and the Skywalkers are the only two families that exist in the universe, and everybody else is kind of a bit player. 
And and those seem like resimplifications that allow JJ to make a movie that he can wrap his head around, but don't really respect, I think, some of the complexity that Last Jedi throws out there. Yeah, and it's that last one that really, I think, troubles me the most, which is that there's this important piece of just storytelling especially when it comes to fantasy storytelling or even science fiction storytelling, which is to say that the chosen one needs to be anyone. And in, I think the gift of Ryan Johnson, especially with the character of Ray was by saying to Ray, it doesn't matter if you came from no one, look what you can do. And if, um, and that gives us a sort of access to that very last shot of uh, The Last Jedi, which I really like, which is the um, uh, the broom boy, as he's come to be known, sure. um, being able to use the force. Right. And what I thought was so brilliant about The Last Jedi was that Ryan Johnson said, OK, so the, the Jedi as an idea is this overlay on this more radical idea. And it's this way to sort of train people into being force users for positive good in the world. Even if they were to all go away, the force, the Jedi were all to go away. The force never goes away. Right. And that's a pretty exciting idea. And it sounded as if like JJ Abrams was uninterested in that idea, at least um, to say that like the last Jedi is not Rose, it's the next one. It's the next generation. And it, and to me, that also sort of sort of plays into the spirit of George Lucas also, which is he always sort of goes for it. He's constantly thinking about expanding the universe, making it bigger, trying to like tell new stories, do things differently. Now, he like fails pretty spectacularly in the, um, the prequels. But the fact that those prequels still have that like that spirit where he's trying to like do CGI and filmmaking in a way that people hadn't done prior to that. And he was like working really hard to try and like move uh, movie making and fantasy storytelling in new directions. And I at least I, I, um, I admire him for that. And I feel like in many ways, this movie is a, um, is a solid caretaking of a property that people all know and are familiar with. And it hits the beats that it needs to hit, but it doesn't ask new questions. It just asks the same questions and then answers them in the way that we expect them to be answered. I think ironically, and I'm, I said on this podcast when it came out that I, I really liked some of the ideas and questions that Last Jedi raised, and I did not think that the movie was perfectly put together and made. And it, it's got some pacing and plotting issues that I think take away from the effectiveness of the, the big important questions it's trying to ask. Um, I actually think in some ways that Rise of Skywalker su- suffers from similar fate, which is that it's just got one too many things going on. <laughs> it's got lots of things going on. How many planets do you go to? This, in this is movie? the thing, right? And this is what makes me, this is where I get super nostalgic for the original trilogy. Cause I think about like the plotting of empire strikes back is that they are on Hoth for a while. 
And then they split up and Luke goes to Tatooine and everybody else bumps around the asteroid field. And then they go to Cloud City and that's the end of the movie. There, there are four spaces in that film. Yeah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna fully nerd correct you and to say not Tatooine but Dagobah. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, absolutely. Um, and this movie has got like a, there are two planets before the opening crawl. Um, maybe it's not before the crawl, but at least before that, the, the kind of opening title because before the movie even begins, Finn is running through some planet to get the Wayfinder, and then he's all the way out to the Sith planet already before we even get into this movie. And then we end up with just... there's It's just... There's too many spaces. <laughs> and it, it felt to me there, similar to my problem with Last Jedi, is that I feel like one too many characters have stories. <laughs> and I like mm-hmm. all of those individual stories, but it at some point you kind of have to choose and narrow, which is what I think Lucas is able to do really well in that first trilogy is say, okay, this is, this is the one story I'm going to tell and I can't touch everything, but I'm going to, I'm going to put my cards on the table here. Um, we're going to, we're going to do indoor like it or not. We're going to do indoor and that's the way it's going to land. And from a plotting perspective, I just feel like this felt frenetic to me Mm -hmm. and i I think there's a couple of things that feed into that too i think this movie has the deck stacked against it in a couple of really critical ways one is that they're trying to work with footage of carrie fisher um that yeah it doesn't work and and i i wish they had that footage though because i think that they could do more with that character in some really positive ways that would improve the movie i found myself wishing that they had allowed that character to go in Last Jedi. Um, they had figured out a way within the plot for that to happen because it felt almost painfully tacked on here, which is not to say that I don't love Princess Leia, but it did feel um, deeply unsatisfying. Uh, I... I also think that this movie suffers from a little bit of what I'm just calling the Iron Man 2 problem, which is that (laughs) even though it is concluding this story arc, it is clearly setting up a number of additional Disney Plus properties. (laughs) It introduces two characters, uh, um, Carrie Russell's uh, character who wears the mask almost the entire time, and also... Uh, the um, Naomi Aki's character is Janna, who becomes kind of potentially Finn's new love interest. Neither one of these characters gets more than three minutes of character development time. They are both clearly there to be spin-off franchises in some other way. Um, and to the exclusion of Rose's character, right? Who should have that screen time and instead loses it because this movie is too busy planting seeds for other things. Um and the, the last problem we have is that J.J. Abrams doesn't know how to end things. No. And he's, he he's so good at beginning things because he loves mystery boxes. I mean, this is the, the, the notorious thing about him is that he's really, really good at opening stuff up because he loves creating suspense and mystery, but he doesn't know how to resolve it. And so in some ways, I think he's the worst person uh, to try to pick this up because it's just not his skill set. I, I kind of, in some ways, feel bad for him trying to do this. It's, it's not... It's, it's not a thing that he is equipped to be able to do well. That's a really good point. And I think that's why I think Ryan Johnson as a 
as a filmmaker was a good choice for the second one. I wonder who the filmmaker who I want for the third is, except the strange thing is it might've been Damon Lindelof who, who was able to land Watchmen in a really satisfying way this last, like the last two weeks. So that there is a sense that there isn't, there isn't a true chart by which these movies have been made, right? Everyone has to sort of reflect back on where, the movie has been prior to that and they work it in the same way. Ryan Johnson doesn't, doesn't have a lot to, he has to work within JJ Abrams framework in times that don't feel particularly, um, creatively compelling, right? He's got to deal with this Snoke character. He's got to deal with a couple of different things where he's trying to figure out how to deal with the decisions made previously. I will say that the thing that I like about this movie and the thing that I've liked about these trilogies overall is I find the Kylo and the Ray relationship incredibly compelling Absolutely. and is doing something different than the, the previous trilogies have done. I mean, so if the, the coupling of, of folks in the previous trilogy, um, the central couple is Padme and Anakin, and that's a huge mess. Um, in the first trilogy, it's uh, Luke is the sort of single solitary figure whose hero's arc we're going to get. And there is some important relationship building between Leia and Han, for instance, and Han and Chewie and some others. But really, Luke is the sort of central focal point. What I really liked about this trilogy is the way in which Rey and Kylo are sort of intertwined and their stories and their arcs sort of play off of each other in some pretty dynamic and I thought and I think thoughtful movie making. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And for all of my griping, I want to say that I actually tremendously enjoyed watching this movie. And I think it's a testament in no small part to to that core relationship between the two of them that I think works incredibly well here as it has throughout the trilogy. And it has I think relatively consistently. I mean, with the exception of this question about Ray's parentage, I, I feel like this is a handoff that Abrams and Johnson were able to make fairly well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that I, I, and I also really like, I, I like the opposition of them, even as it lands here, of, of Kylo Ren as the, the Skywalker born who was desperately trying so hard to be bad. And, and Ray, the Palpatine born now, who has been trying so very hard to be good, and the ways in which those things break and crack and bump up against each other over time. The, I thought, for me, the best moment in this whole film was uh, the confrontation, the first confrontation between Kylo and Ray when she um, does force electricity and like oh, takes, out, takes out the shuttlecraft and you think that Chewbacca is gone. You think that she has straight murdered Chewbacca. I wish they had let that sit for a lot longer than they did. Oh, so much. I, I mean, couldn't agree more. JJ brings Chewbacca back to our vision, like not more than five minutes later, if that. And that should have been an hour. It should have been a, a long time of letting us think and letting Ray think, oh, crap. I have really touched this thing that I did not want to touch. That yeah, resonated so opinion. strongly. I think he should have. Yeah, I think Chewie should have died. I mean, they need to. At some point, the stakes. It's the end, right? Yeah, the stakes need to come, come due. And that's if, there, if there's a problem. One of the problems I have with the movie is that not enough people died. <laughs> <laughs> which is, I mean, which is kind of crazy considering like both 
two of the main characters do die. Um, Leia dies and Kylo dies. But at the same time, there's a part of me that's like, yeah, but these characters that you have grown to love over over almost nine films, like what happens when 3PO is truly obliterated? He doesn't actually get his memory back. You know, that's an important like that's actually an interesting decision to make. What happens when Chewbacca, who who has never been anything but the loyal Wookiee, mm-hmm. who is everyone loves him and seems to have no malice in him whatsoever, becomes the innocent who is killed ostensibly by Ray. Like that's a really interesting question to me. Right. Yeah, I, su- I suspect if they were if they were going to straight kill him, that that's almost something you would have had to do in a second movie of this trilogy to allow it to breathe a little bit and to give <laughs> Ray time to be able to find her way back because that right because there's a just much, too much that's, plot. That's a much longer journey, and I don't I just don't think they would have had room to do it here. But I, I get the point. I mean, I'm with you in principle, especially with the pace that they're working at. They're just working so fast. Yeah. In this movie. And and that that became pretty apparent. I mean, even at the very beginning, right? They're doing this like light speed jumping thing. Yeah. yeah. And it felt like, oh, that, it felt like that was the movie in a lot right. of ways. No, absolutely. So, Matt, we are we're at the end of. This nine part Skywalker saga, um, we've also got a couple of additional movies that give you some helpful understandings of how this saga has been put together in Solo and in Rogue One. It's time to do the obligatory rankings that everybody's going to do. Where where does the Rise of Skywalker fit in your 11 movie ranking? Uh, it's kind of dead center for me. I mean, we talk about an 11 movie ranking, but like 98% of Star Wars rankings have New Hope and Empire in the top two yes. some, in some order and have Phantom and Attack of the Clones in the bottom two in some order. So we're yeah. actually ranking seven movies. Correct. Um, I, <clears throat> for me, I put all the original trilogy ones at the top. So Return of the Jedi is my number three. Uh, then I have Last Jedi, which I think is the best of the new ones. I have Force Awakens right after that, which I don't love thematically, but it's so well executed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's fun. Uh, I like I, that. And I have Rise of Skywalker right after that one, which is sort of in the middle between those two um, in terms of like, it's not, it does not, it's not as interesting and it's not quite as well executed, but I'm still invested and I certainly enjoyed myself. Uh, I have Revenge of the Sith at seven, which is clearly far superior to the other prequels. The last, the second yes. half of that movie um, is, very good. is so good that it, I almost put it higher on this list, but then I remember that I also have to watch the first half. You were my brother. I don't care. (laughs) um, I I really dislike both of the spinoffs. I mean, the last 20 minutes of Rogue One is pretty solid, but I think that movie is a straight mess until it gets to that last sequence. And so I I have them both low here, only redeemed by the fact that they are better than Phantom of Menace and Attack of the Clones. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, what about you? So, yeah, I mean, like you, Empire and New Hope are one and two for me, and Attack of the Clones and Phantom Menace are uh, 11 and 12 for me. I think we both inverted those two. Um, I find, yeah, there's so much good to talk about with respect to New Hope and Empire. Like, Empire, I, I see as a true masterpiece, like, that it's it's not just good Star Wars. It's good movie. 
des- demands to be watched as film um, and cinema. Uh, I really, I really love The Last Jedi. It's my third. I think it is. It goes for it in the way that I really appreciate. And like you, recognize that there's a lot weird with it, and but it's asking bigger questions, and that spirit just kind of wins me over when I watch it. And if it were on, I just, I'm happy to watch whatever scene is on, even the weird one on that, on the planet with the, the gambling and stuff like that. Can't bite. Yeah. Can't bite. Yeah. So, um, I'm, I'm, I'm even, I'm ready for it. So I, I really like that story. Uh, return of the Jedi, which again, I've watched all of these fairly recently <laughs> and I, that movie, it's got, it's very affecting. I mean, so this is the thing that I liked about Return of the, I mean, The Last Jedi is that it has a, it affects me. I emotionally, I get affected. There's that, there's a couple of moments that just like, I find so deeply compelling um, and human. And Return of the Jedi, for all of its weirdness too, has a couple of those, though not in the places that I generally expect. The final reveal of Vader's face is supposed to be this sort of climactic emotional moment, and it never really lands for me. But but the Wookiees, I mean, the, but the Ewoks coming to the rescue, there's a couple of places where I just kind of get just very, uh, ex- yeah, it gets me gets me hyped. Um, I really like the the Rogue One and Solo. Unpopular opinion, I love Solo. I think that movie is super watchable and has some really interesting things to add to the story and give some background to Han Solo that I thought was smart. Um, it had its own problems in making, but I, I really liked it. Seven, eight, nine is uh, revenge of the Sith, which I think is really good. I really like that movie. Uh, and then the force awakens and then the rise of Skywalker. I just, I'm not sure that I like JJ Abrams as a filmmaker as much as other people do. Matt, do you think JJ Abrams is a good filmmaker? How would you, what kind of, what kind of grade would you give J.J. Abrams for his movies? I think J.J. Abrams makes a really good pilot. Right. The pilot of Lost is one of the great television episodes ever made. Yeah. Right. The, the, the opening, the pilot and kind of opening season of Alias is fabulous television. Like he's really good at creating mystery and creating worlds. I have mixed feelings about what happens when he turns his attention to established properties. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, in in Star Wars and Force Awakens, he doesn't raise that many interesting questions. He sort of just recapitulates a lot of what is already out there, and it's beautifully done. But it's not it's not opening. Uh, I, I am on record as caring much more about Star Trek than I do about Star Wars and the his Star Trek universe like rips open a lot of stuff that I just assume it had not. Um, I don't know, to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, he, he clearly knows how to move a camera um, and, and he knows how to edit a sequence. Um, I, I persist in thinking that he has the deck stacked against him in this one a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. just in terms of how the movie is timed and paced, he's got to spend time on characters that clearly Disney wants him to spend time on. And that, that I think breaks the, the flow of this film a little bit, but 
I don't know. It's 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 like his directorial skill is also like one of his mystery boxes. Like it's a it's just it's wrapped in a MacGuffin, and we'll never know what's in there. And I'm not sure we would want to. What do you think? Right. I mean, I so I don't dislike any of the movies. I actually think they're super entertaining, and I always appreciate that. And like you said, it's not as if I get annoyed at his camera. It, I don't find anything particularly inspired. No. Um, even like Mission Impossible Three, I really I like that movie. Yeah, I'll that's watch that clearly movie. his best movie. I would I would I would strongly. I'll, I'll watch that movie. That movie's fun. Yeah. You but, know, but that's even a, that doesn't that's like. A, it doesn't resolve though. I mean, it, it sort of does, yeah. but it leaves all this... It, he still can't quite shut down a plot. He doesn't know how to make denouement work, which is yeah, kind of frustrating. Super 8 was good. as an entertaining film. And then he gets... But in many ways, it feels like... It feels like a Spielberg property. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, and But all of these other things are, are like previous properties. And I'd, I'd like to see him, honestly... What would happen if J.J. Abrams made a sort of like a movie in the vein of Felicity and not in the vein of Lost or Alias, right? Let's see, J.J. Abrams make a romantic comedy. Yeah, I'd love to see that. Yeah, I I mean, I truly would. I think I think he'd actually bring something interesting to it. But the 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 genre conventions would already give him endings. (laughs) Right. You know, the satisfying ending is already in the convent is in the genre. And so you just have to sort of figure out what the interesting idea is that precipitates the conflict. And he's great at that. He's just really tremendous at it. I never see his films or some, a project that he's working on and think, oh, no. I always think, huh, I'll give it a shot. Yeah, I feel the same way. I feel the same way. All right, I want to talk about Christmas and Epiphany, but before we do that, I want to let you all know that support for Sunday Morning Matinee comes from the Candler School of Theology at Emory University, offering 16 degrees, including a Master of Divinity with a concentration in chaplaincy ministries. Take advantage of generous scholarship support. 100% of Masters of Divinity students receive scholarships of at least 50% of tuition. Apply by January 15th for top scholarship consideration. Details at candler.emory.edu slash Sunday morning matinee. Also, we're grateful for our partnership with the Christian Century. We want to guide your attention to the great work that they are doing right now. The Century will frequently do these um, these prompts where they'll ask readers to send uh, in small essays. And they have one up about laps right now, which is actually a pretty interesting set of essays and I want to direct your attentions to it. I think what I really like about this particular article that they'll publish pretty frequently is that it, um, it spreads the wisdom of the larger worshiping community out pretty broadly and gives people an opportunity to, to write really interesting things. And then they do a really good job of curating that writing. So if you are listening and don't yet subscribe to the Century, Sunday Morning Matinee listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, Adam, let's move on to preaching. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir, and we're going to look broadly at the season of Christmas and Epiphany and think about Rise of Skywalker. Adam, as you look at these passages, what jumps out to you? So I think for me, there's the the larger story of star wars where the stakes are always huge 
at least in the actual Star Wars movies, the stakes are always the galaxy, right? And it is a, a group of rebels and a group of powerful um, in, <laughs> imperial folks fighting with each other in order to try and gather some degree of uh, control. The rebels want to gather control in order to, you know, promote freedom. The imperial world is trying to gather control in order to sort of promote power. Um, I think when I come to the Christmas story and the nativity story in particular, I am too often thinking about it in terms of like this amazing incarnational act that's happening in a particular time and place. And, and sometimes forget the sort of high stakes game or, or um, conflict that is going on in the region at the time, but in the world at large and how this also is a hero story where the, the Christ child, the, the, the birth of this small thing is designed to, in some way, create peace from warring factions. And I think that there's the the Star Wars stories do a really good job of trying to tell that high stakes story and how individuals, single individuals, can do amazing things. And so I, there was that a sort of like end game moment in this movie <laughs> where. Suddenly, everyone arrives. Right. Much, much, much less satisfying than it is in Endgame, I would say. But yeah, it is. It yeah. is much less satisfying. But it. I mean, maybe the 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 real winner of this movie might be Marvel. But um, we can talk about that later. To be sure. That moment where the the general says, "Who are these people? They don't have a fleet." And someone responds, "Well, they're just people." And it was a good reminder of like, yeah, that there are these individuals, just people who are born to do amazing things. That said, Jesus is not just a person, but it gives you the sense that like the, the small stories actually have great effects on the big stories. And I always love that about Star Wars. And I think that that's a, an important Christmas theme to raise up. What about you? Yeah, I think there's some, th- th- I think that's really critical. I, I think I feel in this tension between Last Jedi and Rise of Skywalker. I mean, I've, Last Jedi to me feels like a a demythologizing, and Rise of Skywalker is like, can you put a mythology back together once it's been taken apart, um, mm-hmm. or once it's been kind of materially grounded? And I feel a little bit of that tension, even in the like. I mean, this is too oversimplified, but even in the comparison between, say, John's account of the nativity and Luke's account of the nativity. Right. Right. Are you telling a story that is about the broad cosmic forces of light and dark? Or are you telling a story about like a family who had to go be a part of a census? And and the answer is yes. Uh, but I, mm-hmm. I, I think there's ways if if I were trying to preach in that contrast somewhere, there might be ways of of pulling on some of those Star Wars threads to open them up a bit for folks as they think about the different gospel accounts and the different ways in which the the gospels emphasize the story or read the story or hand it off to one another in different ways. Um, But I also think that, you know, as we get into this season, a couple of my favorite things from this movie 
show up with kind of theological um, landing gear on. Uh, and, and one is the, the, this, this idea of um, the thousand generations that live in Ray and the way in which um, the, the ultimate climax between Ray and her grandfather, which may have some clunkiness to it in some other ways, it rests on this like final beat where Palpatine says, I am all the Sith. And Rey says, by extension, like, I am all the Jedi. And you have this call. She's made this call earlier in the film in her training sequence to be with me, be with me, and nobody answers. And then at the end, she does it again, and you start hearing voices of Jedi from the past. All the movies, yeah. And it's and many of them are voices that we can recognize and identify from previous movies, even from like uh, I think the Clone Wars animated series is represented in there. Uh, in theory, it should be, of course, like a thousand generations. It should go back to well before any of these movies, uh, any of the time period of these movies. But there is something really beautiful about that, and I'm thinking about it in the context of. Um, of the genealogies in Matthew 1, uh, where he famously kind of traces the family lineage um, from Abraham through to Joseph and uh, to the birth of Jesus. And it's the thousand generations that live in Christ. Now, Matthew's doing it for a very particular reason. He's doing it to establish the credentials of his story, right? Like this, this is a continuous story with all the Old Testament narratives that you've heard before. But I wonder if there's another way of thinking about it, which is almost like as a, as a level of solidarity, like to fold those genealogies on top of, say, the, the recitation of faithful acts from all the previous generations in Hebrews 11, where you have all the different people who have dealt with this before, who have walked this faith, who have um, taken their faith into these crisis moments, um, who have um, been children and disciples of God in all these different times and places. And now it comes, in this moment, it comes to a crescendo here. Uh, I think there's a way of, of, of preaching that that could be really, really beautiful. I, I agree. I love that. And I, that genealogy is so interesting for a variety of reasons. The, the first of which is all of the various different types of names, both these sort of insiders and outsiders in right. that particular genealogy. The fact that, you know, to... To the point I made earlier, the Ruth is named in in this genealogy, which is really interesting as a sort of Moabite woman, but also um, because that particular story is a story about how the uh, the faithfulness of a Moabite foreigner is actually the thing that gives rise to David and the kingship that um, that will solidify Israel in in the land, and um, but. There's a really interesting detail about that particular genealogy that I've preached on before that I like, which is that Matthew gives that sort of tidy 14, 14, 14, 14 generations between um, Abraham and David, 14 generations between David and the exile, and then 14 generations between the exile and Christ, except that that last 14 is only 13. Like there's a missing generation right. there. And to your point, the way that we sort of think about these thousands of generations, like, so you get to the, the 13th generation and that's Christ. So who is Christ? Who's the progeny of Christ basically? And you get to see like, oh yeah, like 
Matthew might be making a point about like everybody who comes after. Yeah. Like these, this fledgling church that has begun, that finds its, um, its birth, so to speak, in Christ. And so what Matthew is doing is telling the story not only about the birth of Christ, but also the birth of the church. Yeah, beautiful. The, the, the last big piece that kicks in for me is, is more of an epiphany piece than a Christmas piece. It's thinking about, um, it's thinking about the baptism of Jesus someday that's coming up in a couple of weeks and thinking about all of the naming and family identity stuff that works through Rise of Skywalker. And this is actually my favorite thing about this movie is Ray Skywalker. Um, and I think, yeah. the, the, I think, the, I, I like that. I think the climax of this movie is incredibly well earned and it, and it posits kind of a through line in this entire new trilogy, which is about, um, which is about claiming the family that, um, um, that you need to claim. So the original trilogy is sort of about the inevitability of family, right? Eventually you have to confront your father. Eventually you have to reconcile or realize that you have this sister. These, these, these kind of old biological family ideas have a way of, of coming out no matter what. This new trilogy seems to be about family and self-determination. Ray is born a Palpatine, but she gets to choose her fate. She self-determines to be a Skywalker. And the movie does this amazing thing in that last sequence where instead of seeing her parents, who we have met in flashback very briefly, as, as, as the ghosts waving at her, she sees Luke and Leia as force ghosts. They are not even themselves a, a couple, right? Like they are brothers. I know and it's sisters. a non-traditional family. I love They're, that. And I and, and that. she she has adopted a non-traditional family uh, of her own free will and of her own volition. And the force in that moment has kind of recognized and authenticated. No, this is your family now, uh, and it does not matter who you, what last name you came from. It matters who you have chosen to be. And there's, there's, there's a beautiful way to talk about that in terms of baptism and in terms of the, the identities that God calls us to um, and the, the new names that we get in baptismal waters uh, that I think is, is really worth exploring, um, partially because it's just critical theology and partially because I think it pulls on the best thread in this film. Yeah, and I think that there's a way to do that with Kylo, too, because the— yeah, absolutely. The the call, it's not just the determination that we have to choose our names. It's the call back when we have chosen the wrong name. Right. I wanted to when take Ben Solo's hand. Yeah, and that was great. I love that. Yeah, I think I think those are super line. affecting. Yeah. Um, because it's, I've chosen this name because I believe that that's who my identity is. And then the people who truly love us most come into our lives and say, like, that's not that's really not who, who you are. are. Right. That's right. And that that itself, both of both the character trajectory of Ray and Ben have a sort of conversion and sanctification mm -hmm. thing going on, mm -hmm. which is like conversion is it's not just conversion to something. It can be conversion back to something, too. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we talk about that a lot, but I, I like that piece with with Ben in particular and that that not only is baptism an opportunity to get a new name like it's it's also cleansing, right? right. It, it can be something that pulls something off of us. Yeah. 
Um, and that I think both of those are represented both in the K, the Kylo and Ben and Ray story, which is Ray needs to put on something to make her fully herself. And Kylo needs to take something off in order for him to be fully himself. And in that way, they do provide this nice way of thinking about, okay, so what happens in the baptismal waters mm-hmm. and how are both of those represented in that place? Yeah. Beautiful. There's so much more to talk about with this movie. Um, and just with the whole of the Skywalker saga, I think it is among the most popular and important pop culture artifacts. But if you have other things that you want to talk about, if you want to join the conversation, feel free to you know contact us via the show page. Um, but for now, I think it's time for our last segment, Matt. This is called Postludes. It's a chance to get another little preacher thought from something that we're watching or following. What's your postlude? So as much as I enjoyed watching Rise of Skywalker, I have been considerably more fascinated by the release of the new Cats musical that we hinted at at the top of the show, <laughs> um, which is, which is, which is on so track to go down as, like, as one of the great Hollywood Titanics of all time. It's a $100 million movie that made $2 million this weekend. Uh, and oh my gosh, $2 million? Yeah. Some, and that's that's the, yeah the most fascinating thing to me is that right now as we record this um studios across the country are re-downloading upgraded versions of the movie because the studios um last week did final touches to visual effects that didn't make it out for opening day and so the the theaters are getting like upgraded versions of visual effects that didn't make the cut for the actual release now there's no way that they've had enough time to do like major sweeping changes. My hunch is this is patching like little tiny flaws and stuff like that. It's not going to make the movie substantially different. But it does pose this really interesting question, which is what edition of this film survives for posterity? <laughs> now, perhaps the answer to that movie should be none. Perhaps the answer is that they should all die in a fire. But the question still matters in theory because we, we end up in this question every once in a while about what gets to count as the final and authoritative version of a movie we have you know director's cuts and extended director's cuts just to ask blade runner and like there are like 15 different versions of that movie but most famously despite your attempts earlier in this recording to defend him (laughs) this is back to being a story about how george lucas is a pain he's such a pain he's yes so, so here's the story. So in the late 1980s, uh, Ted Turner had gotten his hand on a lot of old classic Hollywood movies and was re-releasing them in colorized versions. And mm-hmm. so a bunch of uh, Lucas-era filmmakers got very upset and went to D.C. to lobby for protection for their work so that they couldn't be messed with by outside interlopers. And this didn't quite pan out the way they wanted it to, but what they did end up getting created was the National Film Registry at the Library of Congress, which every year picks 25 films from American history to be collected and preserved in a special collection at the Library of Congress. This first year of existence was 1989. And one of the first years, one of the first movies they picked in that original 25 was the original 1977 release of Star Wars A New Hope. That was 30 years ago. 
They had a copy in their vault already, of course. They had a copy that was submitted alongside the copyright registry when the movie was released. They do that with anything that's under copyright. But the one that they have is an archival master that they don't want to mess with. They never want to mess with those. So in 89, when they put a new hope into their inaugural year they write to lucasfilm and 20th century fox as they do with every other film in that registry and they request a print of the 1977 original 30 years ago and they are still waiting are you serious (laughs) (laughs) because george lucas refuses to provide them with a print of the 1977 original release of this film because the movie itself famously of course keeps changing the special editions in, in the 90s posed multiple new computer graphics effects. Even the Disney Plus release of the film mm-hmm. that came out a month ago has a newly sequenced edit of the Greedo and Han sequence. He yeah, cannot, and it says something weird. He cannot yeah. stop. He cannot stop. Now, we can argue about which cuts are better or worse. That is a whole other internet argument, and I it does not matter to me for the purpose of this diatribe. The thing that bothers me here is just as a historian, that 1977 release of this film is an epical event. It is a critical moment in American cinema and American pop culture, arguably one of the most important cultural moments in American history, and arguably one of the most important cultural moments in 20th century and modern world history. And we have nothing in a library documenting what people saw when they went to see this thing that reshaped Hollywood. Just like scripture. I mean. Right. (laughs) (laughs) No, not fair. No, it's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. Yeah. That's what I got. I'm just mad. (laughs) I appreciate that. My um, My favorite quote. I think it's from Orson Welles when Ted Turner is doing this is I don't want Turner anywhere near my film with his crayons, <laughs> which is awesome, which is amazing. Um, so I, I, I'm not as passionate about what I'm about to talk about. <laughs> I, so let me, let me first say, Matt, I totally agree. He like the constant tinkering is, is old. He can, I don't even, and I don't even mind the constant tinkering. It's weird, but okay. You can tinker all you want. Just these are archival film prints that deteriorate over time. And what we need are librarians and archivists who can make replicas or very good digital prints. And yes, there are like fan-made versions of this going around. And yet, like that original release version is is now as you're exactly it might be right, gone it's it's not like threatening to disappear into the mists of history like scripture in that kind of like it ends up in that weird cobbled together <laughs> place which right okay well that's this is 40 years ago we should be able to right, fix but, this yeah. yeah and and with scripture i think we would all prefer the original right. autograph sure yeah right <laughs> exactly you know like, like i feel like culturally if we, had, we should have, have solved this problem by now Right. <laughs> yes, exactly. So speaking of important films and movie history, um, Home Alone is really good. Have you, <laughs> are you aware of this? It's, it's, it's a great movie about a psychopathic it, kid. It's an incredibly well-told story. 
And here's the thing. I, I'm just sort of fascinated by the fact that there are like source texts for people to think about their lives in particular to the world around them. Right. So this has become in my house, this very unlikely source text. And what I'm beginning to realize is many is a very, very important source for lots of people as they understand Christmas. That Home Alone is among the young people in my church, an incredibly important Christmas movie that they all really love and will continue to watch over and over again. I have watched my own son come under the thrall of Home Alone in all of its iterations. I have watched I have watched the straight to video Home Alones oh recently. Gosh. They're making new home they're making a new Home Alone that come out through Disney Plus. They're um is Macaulay Culkin going to play the grizzled old guy across the street now? <laughs> guy, the, the, he's going to play one of the robbers because there's always someone who's trying to steal something, right? I mean, this is the premise of the movie. And um, and so I'm just sort of fascinated about the ways in which these pop cultural artifacts, they, for most of my life, felt like they all preceded me and I received them. I'm now in a place where I'm no longer giving them, but they are being received by a group of people. And I'm thinking, wait, that? <laughs> right. That is the thing that you are like, this is important. I need to preserve this. Like, I don't have nostalgia for Home Alone, but my kid will. Yeah, yeah, that's real. And I don't, I don't quite know what to do with that at this point in my life because I can't totally tell which is like what is going to become important. The same thing is with like the other source text that is becoming very, very important to a younger generation is the office. Right. Which is like incredibly popular on college campuses where, and, and I walk around like to go pick up my wife at Villanova and she'll like, I'll see like four to five Dunder Mifflin shirts. And, and it was like, at the time it was like, I like this show but had no idea that it would become a sort of like something that is passed on to the next generation as an important text by which to understand pop culture. And you wonder what happens to that one when it is no longer on Netflix. Like, because that's about to expire, right? It's going to NBC's own platform. And I, I, I wonder kind of what the five-year trajectory of that, right. that is, um, which is, you know, my... Just joke or go back to my original theme. It's good to have things in a publicly available archive, Adam. Agreed. Yeah. Agree. I agree <laughs> with you. I agree. Well, that about wraps it up for me ranting about archives, and it's about enough of this episode. If you like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come to the show page and tell us how we got it wrong. In particular, make sure to tell Adam how he got it wrong. We'd love <laughs> to hear your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter at the show page at sundaymorningmatmade.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century and to the fine editing skills of Derek Weston. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band. Chuby got his medal at last. Thanks, Adam. <laughs> thanks, Matt. Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs>